welcome to the HBG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, Chase, we are on to episode five. We are in Acts chapter six, and we're going to hopefully be able to make it through all of the text we have for today. We're going to try to do two chapters which is always dangerous. Hey, um, this podcast was made for you. You were literally named after this podcast. So we're, we've been looking forward to this for two seasons now. I, I wasn't named HBG Bible Talks, but I am named Stephen. <laughs> well, today, so. the, the episode then, how's that? <laughs> yes. No, it is true that uh, Stephen is a family name, but I was also named for uh, Stephen that we'll read about in these chapters. So I am, I am partial to them. But... Um, this is going to be a pivotal moment in the early church. Um, I think we talked about this at the end of the podcast last week, but the opposition in Acts 3, 4, and 5 has been pretty much all external. And in Acts 6, we are going to have a really tense moment in the early church and its internal issues that could very easily result in a split. And uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but um, this is a, a different type of challenge. Sometimes internal challenges can be even harder in some ways than uh, external challenges. Yes. So today's podcast uh, will start in Acts chapter six, um, and I'm going to be reading verses one through seven out of the New American Standard Bible. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Harmonius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Oh, in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I was going to say, don't leave verse 7 out. Yeah, verse seven is kind of like the, the whole conclusion of it all. <laughs> right, right. You gotta. It's one of those summary verses. Yeah. Um, so these days, the disciples are increasing in number. Uh, we've had three thousand at the end of Acts two. That number increases mm-hmm. to five thousand at the beginning of chapter four, after Stephen's sermon in chapter three, and they just continue to grow. We don't really get another number update in the book of Acts, but <laughs> disciples are just growing and growing. And again, all of this is focused in Jerusalem so far. That's really where the church is, is centered. And um, after these chapters, we'll read today about the scattering of the Christians. But man, I mean, there are just thousands and thousands of Christians in Jerusalem at this point. So by the time we get to chapter six, we're kind of walking into an awkward situation, aren't we, Stephen? Uh, there is this really kind of touchy scenario where there are these Hellenistic Jews um, and who, who are the Hellenistic Jews? Yeah, so Hellenistic is the idea of Greek culture. 
And so some of the Jews would have been the Hebrew Jews. They're the ones who are just very culturally still doing all of the Jewish customs. Whereas the Greek speaking Jews were still Jews. They're still keeping the law of Moses, but they are, have they have adopted the Greek culture, perhaps the Greek language, clothing, things like that. And so there's a cultural divide even among the Jews. And there are, this tells you how many people there were, that there were a number of widows on both sides of this and enough widows that they were needing to be fed, taken care of. They didn't have anybody to take care of them. So God's people were taking care of them. Um, and so we have one set of widows, the, the Greek Jewish widows were being neglected in the daily distributing of food. And man, I mean, what more touchy subject is there than little old ladies who are being neglected? I mean, this could split the church wide open. You could end up with the Greek Jewish church and the, the Hebrew Jewish church. I mean, this is an easy split down the middle if they don't handle this wisely. This is very emotional, very touchy. So the 12 get the whole church together, right, in verse 2. And they say, it's not desirable for us to uh, serve tables um, and to neglect the word of God. And so they have the solution. Now, I'll just say from the beginning, I don't think it's that the 12 don't want to help out with the widows. Uh, I think that they have demonstrated from here and, and previously that they, they love God's people. They, they love serving, but their priority is spreading the word of God. And that might not be a, a tool set that some of the others have. And so their solution makes a lot of sense. We're going to, uh, we're going to put this in the, in the hands of the church and we want you all to solve this problem but we want you to do it by looking out among you and appointing seven men who are, it says good of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. And they say, appoint those seven guys and uh, we'll, we'll put them in charge of this task, but we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word there. Yes. They're in a way outsourcing the work, but it's for the case of the furtherance of the gospel so that more work can be accomplished. Um, and you see a lot of focus here on it's the church who is appointing these men. They're the ones who are looking out among themselves to find those seven men who fit those descriptions that the apostles gave forth for them. And so verse five, uh, we'll follow who those seven men are, which is Stephen. We'll talk more about him in just a little bit. Um, in fact, it, in, it includes and tells us that, uh, Stephen, um, was a uh, man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And we're told about Philip, the Bible story and Acts will follow him a little bit later as well. And then six other men as well, one of which is a proselyte, Stephen, which I find very interesting, which means, of course, he was a Gentile at one time, but converted to Judaism. Yeah, I think that it's notable that these men, from what I understand, most of these are Greek names. And so these men certainly meet the qualities that the apostles have said, we want men who are of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. But it also seems that they may have been particularly well suited to take care of the Greek widows because they themselves were Greek. And I mean, Stephen is a Greek name. It means crown. And uh, that is the idea here is that these men are taking care of their own in some ways, making sure they're not neglected. And um, the apostles uh, pray and lay their hands on them. I do think it's notable that the apostles were doing an incredibly important work of prayer and ministering the word. 
the, the word here uh, for like ministry is just they're being servants. And so I love that there's a real focus here that we don't want to neglect the important work of the gospel, but we want to make sure that these widows are being taken care of. This is part of the church taking care of its own to taking care of the needy, which is incredibly important, but you don't do either to the exclusion of the other, um, that they're both very important, uh, but the apostles are focused particularly on prayer and uh, ministering the word. And so verse seven, instead of this becoming an implosion or a division of the church, this continued to grow. Uh, the word of God continued to increase. The disciples multiply in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. That's really interesting because the last time we read about uh, the priests uh, was in one that the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees were the ones who were frustrated that Peter and John were preaching the resurrection. And so they throw them in prison. But now even some of the priests are becoming obedient to the faith. And so mm -hmm. what could have been a total disaster in the early church is turned into an opportunity for people to be taken care of and the word of God to continue to spread. In other words, they found a solution and they communicated with one another. And that's such an important point to see. Whenever the Hellenistic Jews found out that their widows were being overlooked, they didn't just congregate together and go, hey, can you believe that they're treating us this way? They didn't like stand back and gossip. They brought the problem forward. They said, hey, this bothers us. Here's the issue. Can we do something about this? And the Jews said, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we'll figure out a problem. We'll, we'll figure out the solution to this problem. And there was just an attitude of open communication and problem solving. And that's what's needed in a church, not backbiting or gossip or slander or malice or any of that garbage. Open communication, and then let's find the solution. Acts chapter 6 is a wonderful example of that. Yeah, that is absolutely right. It's also kind of interesting as we get into the next section here, the first two of the seven guys they choose forms kind of the outline for the next section of the book of Acts. Uh, Stephen is the first guy they choose, and he's going to be the subject of chapter six, verse eight, all the way through the end of chapter seven. And even the first four verses or so of chapter eight is going to be about Stephen's ministry and sermon. And then when we get into Acts chapter eight, starting in verse five, it talks about Philip. He's the second guy that are chosen. So these are not just table servants, but these are guys ministering the word as well. And they're going to serve in Jerusalem, but they're going to serve in other capacities as well. So this gets us into reading about Stephen. So I'll read this next part here. Uh, we're going to read six, uh, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. We'll read down to 7, verse 1. Acts 6, starting in verse 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who, saw in the count, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. 
And the high priest said, are these things so? And then Stephen's going to respond with this sermon that takes up almost all of chapter seven. So Stephen has been given some extra spiritual gifts here, some miraculous gifts um, that he's doing wonders and signs. And the Jews do not like it. Um, they can't argue with him. So they attack him, which this is a very common tactic then and now when you can't respond to someone's arguments or overcome, you know, their, the truth of what they're saying, well, you need to attack the person. Forget about right. the arguments. Forget about truth. We just need to get rid of this person. I, I love New American Standard says that they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It's like they didn't know how to cope with it. They didn't know how to understand it. They just didn't know what to do, I think, as you just said. And so they obviously uh, do what they can to, to shut them up. Yeah. And this reminds us so much of Jesus. I mean, they're putting forward false witnesses. They're stirring up the crowds. I mean, there is no reason here. They are angry with Stephen because they can't argue with him. And so they are going to try to get rid of him, uh, just like they got rid of Jesus. And again, it's just amazing. The book of Acts just shows us how much the disciples become like their Lord, both in the good that they're doing and in the opposition and persecution that they face. So um, some of the, the false accusations against Stephen are pretty interesting just because they do have a grain of truth in them. As accusations often do. Yeah. Um, and it comes back to the temple. It comes back to you know, speaking words against the temple and against the law. And remember, Jesus came and he did establish a new covenant. He declared all foods clean. Um, and he did have a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem and what was going to happen there. We read about that when we did the Gospel of Mark on the podcast. And so the fact that they're saying, oh, he's saying that Jesus is going to come and destroy the temple. Well, that's not entirely untrue in the sense that Jesus prophesied this is going to come. Now, he's going to use the Roman army to do it. But these are some true things, but they're, of course, twisting this and framing Stephen as this instigator. Um, and he's, you know, against the Jewish cause, which is just not true. And so um, Stephen is there before the council. And I don't know exactly what this means, but the, his face is like the face of an angel. Uh, I don't know if it's a little bit like the transfiguration a little bit, um, but uh, he, his face is shining. He is going to have a vision of the Lord toward the end here where he looks up and sees Jesus. Um, and the high priest asks him, all right, is this true what they're saying about you? So Stephen has an opportunity to make his defense here. Well, let's, uh, let's go ahead and read that. Uh, I'm going to pick up in chapter seven and I'm going to read verses two down to verse 16. And he said, hear me, brethren and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had moved him to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they will be in bondage, I myself will judge. 
said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. And from there they were removed to Shechem and laid in the tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Wow. So we get a retelling of Israel's history. Uh, something important to remember as you read through this, Stephen is going somewhere with this. Uh, remember, he, he is a Jew, uh, and he is speaking to a bunch of Jews, people who would have known these stories quite well. And so as you listen to this story, you might have heard these stories as well and be thinking, well, what is his point? Well, that's why we're going to tackle this all in one podcast today is because he's getting somewhere with all of these stories. They all kind of have a common thread that he is trying to point out. And he starts starting with Abraham. That's right. So he starts with common ground, which is a, a really helpful point from the book of Acts. Going in Acts 2, Peter starts on common ground. Acts 7, Stephen's going to start on common ground. But then we'll have a different kind of sermon in like Acts 17, where Paul starts on the common ground. of Hey, you got an altar to the unknown God. Um, so Stephen says, all right, we share our Jewish heritage. Let's talk about that. But it's a very specific history lesson. And he's going to highlight two people primarily in this sermon. The first is going to be Joseph. And the second is going to be Moses that we'll read about in the next big chunk. And the first, the reason he highlights Joseph in the first part of this lesson is that Joseph was rejected by his own, but ends up saving his own. After God made the promises to Abram and brought them, you know, made the promises to him, um, then the brothers, they're jealous of Joseph. They sell him into Egypt. They betray him. They reject him. But then God uses even that action of them selling Joseph into Egypt to rescue the whole family. And he comes back and forgives his brothers and brings them to Egypt and, and blesses them. God, God preserves the family alive because of that. Very similar to what God does with Jesus. Yeah. He comes to his own, his own do not receive him, but then their action against Jesus, their killing of Jesus results in the deliverance of them and of all mankind. Um, Jesus's death atones for their sins. And that doesn't excuse the guilt of them destroying an innocent person, just like it didn't excuse the brothers from doing what they did to Joseph, but God used their evil I mean, that's what Joseph says at the end of, the, of his life, right? You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And so this is going to be like the first step in the lesson that he's, again, he's bringing this home to these Jewish leaders about them killing Jesus. 
Anything else through verse 16 you've got, Chase? No, no. Let's keep plugging along and see, see what else Stephen has to say. Okay. Well, we're going to read a big chunk here, uh, so stay with us. Uh, I'm going to read verses 17 down through verse 43, and this is Moses' story. So as you go through this, watch for a similar pattern in the life of Moses, as we saw with the example of Joseph. This is Acts 7, verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose after, over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And, and as he drew near to look, there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they returned to Egypt. They turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what, was, what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So we'll stop there. There's a lot going on here, a lot of Moses' history. But do you see the theme in here? That Moses yeah. is rejected and then saves his people. 
Yes, um, that happens pretty early on in Moses's life. Uh, from, from the very beginning, as a child, he, he is going to be sent away by his people. Uh, and then, of course, by God's providence, Pharaoh's daughter will pick him up and take care of him, and uh, his mother will end up nursing him. But he is raised in the house of Pharaoh. And then, of course, he eventually is rejected by Pharaoh's house when he rises up against the Egyptians. And so there's just this constant theme of denial in Moses's life. And it's just amazing the number of shadows that we have in the life of Moses that point us to, to Jesus. We have um, the fact that he's brought up in a place of royalty, um, but then chooses to endure with the people of God. And it's kind of interesting that, again, when he kills the Egyptian, there in verse uh, 24, he's trying to defend his, his brothers, but they don't realize that he's there to deliver them. And they reject him as a leader. Same thing with Jesus. He's come to deliver them. They don't recognize that he's their deliverer and they reject him. But then it happens again. So God brings Moses back and he actually delivers the people. There's the 10 plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea. They go out into the wilderness. But even in the wilderness, they reject Moses and they build the idol. There's the, the, the golden calf at Mount Sinai right there at the place where God gave them the law, they're immediately rebelling against Moses and really ultimately rebelling against God by rejecting the deliverer that he sent to them. And then he quotes in the book of Amos chapter five and talks about when you came out of, of, of Egypt, you were still idolaters. You, you were worshiping the idols of the nations. And so his point is that there's a pattern going on here. God's people are oppressed. God sends them a deliverer. Then they reject the deliverer, but God still delivers them. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing how patient God is through all of this. And there's a phrase in here I just want to bring out real quick. In verse 39, it says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. I think that's a powerful thing to think about, that uh, they didn't physically go back to Egypt at this point, but that's where they went in their hearts. Um, they were still serving the idols of Egypt. They were still wanting to go back and did not appreciate the deliverance that God had given them. Yes. <laughs> and a story that can too often be about us as well. We can be serving God outwardly, but inwardly our heart is turned back towards sin and the things of the past. All right. Well, that, uh, that brings us to this next section um, and really the conclusion of, of Stephen's sermon. Uh, Acts 7, I'm going to read starting in verse 44 down to 53. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? 
They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. So before we kind of dissect Stephen's conclusion there, uh, he brings up, uh, as he wraps up Moses, he wraps up by uh, talking about Joshua going into the land, conquering the land with God's help, obviously, and then David uh, wanting to build this temple for God. God, of course, in 2 Samuel 7 says, this is not going to be your job, but for the descendant after you, and then it'll be Solomon who does so. But I love how Stephen makes the point in verse 48 and verse 49 that God really can't dwell in things made with human hands anyways. Uh, I think that's a really important point for us to understand even now. Uh, what, that reference, what is that? Is that Amos 5 as well? Uh, no, no, no. That's uh, sorry. Isaiah that's, 66. Uh, that's Isaiah 66. My bad. So he, he ends his point by saying that, that there's really no temple for God to dwell in anyways. Um, that That's made with, with human hands. Um, and so that moves him into his accusation against them. Uh, I think it's completely fair as they're having him on trial. He's putting them on trial as the mouthpiece of God. And he tells them that they are stiff necked. Uh, what, what's that idea of being stiff necked, Stephen? <laughs> well, I mean, if you have a stiff neck, you, you can't turn your head. Um, you're set in your ways and yeah. you're not going to change. Yeah. Uh, I, I sometimes, uh, my daughter, she's seven months old now. She sometimes gets that stiff neck. If she has her eyes set on something, she wants to you know, crawl towards something or get something, she gets that stiff neck, and it's hard to take her attention off of it. Uh, Stephen tells them that they are uncircumcised in heart, uh, which really goes well with what Stephen was just highlighting for us back in verse 39, with their hearts being turned back toward Egypt. I, I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stephen. And before we leave this section on the temple, just remember that one of the accusations against Stephen was about the temple, that, oh, Jesus is going to come and destroy this. And Stephen is telling them, listen, God dwelt with the people in the Old Testament like this. But really, even Solomon realized that God doesn't dwell in houses like this. In Solomon's dedication prayer, he said, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. But the Jews had come to rely so heavily on their temple. They did that before the temple was destroyed the first time in 586. They were saying, oh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And God took away the thing, the physical thing they trusted in because they weren't trusting in him. And he's making the same point here. You guys have such faith in this physical building, but God doesn't dwell in houses made by human hands. And he quotes from their law to prove that. Quotes from the prophets, uh, Isaiah 66. And then brings it home by saying, you're not worried about God's spirit dwelling in the temple. You are resisting the Holy Spirit. And I think the whole sermon really is summed up at the end of verse 51. As your fathers did, so do you. That's really the the point of his whole sermon. He's given this history lesson. The fathers Mm -hmm. rejected Joseph, yet Joseph was the deliverer. The fathers rejected Moses on multiple occasions. And yet Moses was the deliverer. And now you are just like your fathers. You have rejected the most important prophet. You've rejected the righteous one, betrayed him, and murdered him. But the thing that really gets him up in arms is verse 53. 
you who received the law was delivered by angels and did not keep it. You didn't mm-hmm. even keep the law, just like they rebelled against the law in the wilderness. This generation has not kept the law either. And that's as far yeah. as they let Stephen go. Yeah. I, I, I fully suspect as we see pretty commonly through the book of Acts that I, I think Stephen probably had a little bit more mm-hmm. to say. Um, there of course is the resurrection of Jesus. There are many other things, but, but verse 54 will kind of pick up on why he can't continue in his lesson. Yeah. So Acts 7, verse 54, we'll read down through 8, 4. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So Stephen is cut short with what he has to say because when he accuses them rightfully so of their ignoring and not keeping the law, they're cut to the quick. They grind their teeth at him. The ESV says, and that's like the idea of them, you know, gnashing their teeth. That's how angry they are. He looks into the heavens, sees the glory of God and sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he tells them all, this is what I see. Uh, he, here are the heavens opened up. Here is the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they don't hear him or don't care about that. In verse 57, they cry out with a loud voice. They cover their ears so that they can't hear him anymore. And they all just rush him. Um, they drive him out of the city and they stone him. The first Christian martyr that we read about. That's right. What's interesting is the word martyr actually means witness, but it has come to mean someone who dies for the cause of Christ, or really it sometimes will use it in an even broader sense of just someone who dies for a cause they believe in. But we've seen the opposition escalating in Acts three and four, they were threatened in Acts five, they were beaten. And now in Acts seven, Stephen is killed. Um, and then they're they kill scattered. Jesus, they kill him. And, and then they're scattered. And so we, we really are. We're going to leave the, uh, the podcast today on a bit of a cliffhanger. Uh, what, what's what's going to happen? I mean, this church, surely it's about to be snuffed out. This is about to be the end of it. Uh, the, the Jews have asserted themselves as serious about putting this to an end. They've scattered the church because of the persecution by the hands of this young man named Saul. So maybe this is the end 
of the Jesus movement as we know it is really what we're trying to leave off on. Yeah. It's amazing to me, though, that the more we read about the Jesus movement, the more they become like Jesus. And this is the closest that someone has come to being just like Jesus. He's been killed. And notice what Stephen says as they are stoning him. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which is very similar to Jesus saying, Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them, which is very similar to Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And just amazing to see the character of Stephen, the, the boldness and the forgiveness that he has to be able to confront these wicked men with their sin in a very effective way that penetrates their hearts. But then as they are killing him, he is pleading with God to forgive them and to be merciful to them, just like Jesus did. And so again, Jesus followers, he says, a disciple is not above his master. It's enough for a disciple to become like his master. And that is exactly what Stephen has done in these chapters. It tells us at the end of verse 60, having said this, he fell asleep. For the Christian, death is not the ultimate death. It is simply a temporary measure uh, because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice, because of his resurrection. Christians do not sleep forever. They will be raised to walk and to be caught up into the heavens with Jesus forever. Um, First Thessalonians 4 and 5 have a lot to say about that. And so you will see that pretty often uh, in, in the language of a Christian dying, that they did not die, but they fell asleep because they will once again rise. That's right. So Lord willing, next week uh, we'll pick up in Acts 8. Uh, we'll talk more about verses 1 through 4. We didn't talk about it like we wanted to today. But we'll pick up in what the Christians are doing once they're scattered across the different areas of, of, uh, of the country, of the area. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next week. Yeah, thank you all so much for listening today. Um, if you're enjoying what you're hearing on the podcast, please do subscribe, rate, review. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions or other comments about this, uh, you can contact us, 717-585-0949 or capitalcitychristians.gmail.com. Or for more information about online studies, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.